The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. But this point about freedom is so fundamental. Like we cannot be free if we don't have bodily integrity. And one of the reasons that the far right is so obsessed with getting rid of abortion is because of this horror they have of freedom and this absolute desire to get rid of of people's freedoms. It's not letting the right take hold of these narratives. It's not giving them permission to decide what an abortion is. If we cannot decide what we can do with our bodies, whether or not we can have children, can we really be free? Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. Feminism is a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. That is, according to Pat Robertson, the recently deceased Baptist minister and far-right shock jock notorious for some, shall we say, revealing bluntness, for saying the quiet part loud, if ridiculously, that a lot of far-right thinking is powered by a fundamental suspicion of women— a suspicion of people making genuinely free choices about what they do with their bodies. Today, as the far right gathers steam in the streets and in the halls of power, we're seeing a backlash against abortion rights and gender-based rights ramp up as well. So, what's the relationship between the anti-choice crusade and the far right? And why is this kind of misogyny so effective in galvanising the right across the world? I asked Edna Bonham and Sean Norris about conspiracy theories, the racial politics of the family, and the fascist obsession with bodies and baby-making. Sean Norris is a writer, a journalist, and an investigative reporter whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Open Democracy, and many more. She's the author of the book Bodies Under Siege, How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global, recently published with Verso. Edna Bonham is a historian of science, a writer, an editor, and a cultural critic. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Baffler, The Nation, and beyond. She's the author of the forthcoming books Tending to Our Wounds and A History of the World in Six Plagues. And she's the co-author of After Sex. Sean, Edna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to have you both on. So right up top, I just want to pause for a second and have a little chat about language among us with you, the listeners, because we are wading into some somewhat storied and um, tricky territory here because of the nature of the violent transphobia, which has taken massive hold of basically all public debates, certainly in the UK, otherwise known as Turf Island. So when we are talking about the ideology that the right is working with, the projects that they understand themselves to be operating, the kind of logic that they understand themselves to be operating with, we're going to be using phrases like women and girls, women to talk about the kind of subjects that we mean, (laughs) the kind of subjects that they mean. But of course, it is the case that not everyone who can get pregnant, who can give birth, to whom these questions are relevant, is a woman. And if you disagree with that, I'm afraid you are just simply inaccurate. Uh, So sorry about that. So in the effort to be inclusive and to be more to the point 
accurate and on the side of justice, we will also be using phrases like pregnant people, people who can get pregnant, that kind of thing, when we are talking about the political and biological realities on the ground. I hope that is all clear. And if not, it will all become clear in the wash. So with that out the way, Sean, your book charts the rise of the global far right and the, these networks of what you call the sort of the anti-gender movement and its deep imbrication, its deep interest in trying to stamp out what we might call reproductive justice wherever they think it might somewhere crop up. So I'd like to kind of get us all on a a groundings, if you like, and just ask you, okay, what is this sort of fascist understanding of bodies in general and the kind of quote-unquote female body? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's been a whirlwind of a week, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, My book came out on Tuesday and it's been so great to see such a positive reception and having the chance to talk about it and all the research I've been doing over so many years. It's now suddenly feels very real. Um, So yeah, my book looks at kind of, well, the subtitle of the book is How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global, which kind of tells you what you need to know if you're going to pick this book up. And what I do at the beginning of the book is look at the different ways in which um, women's bodies and women's status in society is coded in fascism. And I have a look at what I call the sort of three pillars of fascist thought architecture as they relate to women's bodies and and to gender and, and to race. The first sort of pillar in the fascist thought architecture is something called the natural order. And this is an idea that was rooted in kind of very early stages of fascism, when you go back to 1920s, 1930s fascism and Nazi movements, that there was a sort of period when, well, not even a period, the idea that humans are governed by nature, that there's no such thing as society, there's no such thing as rationality, there's no such thing as progress, and we need to actually roll back history in order to get back to this kind of state of nature where men are superior, women are inferior, white people are superior, black and global majority people are inferior, and LGBT people just don't get to exist. They don't have, you know, any right to exist in this natural order. And when you look at the position, the sort of inferior position of women in in this, you know, ideology within fascism, it's very much pinned to the idea that women's bodies are exploitable resources, that they're vessels to exploit and to impregnate, and that women are pinned to reproduction, and that they have to be subservient and inferior to the kind of patriarchal authority. And that patriarchal authority is both the sort of man in the house, you know, the husband, the father figure, but it's also the kind of leader of the nation. The second pillar is this idea of the fascist mythic past. And this is a belief that there was once upon a time some magical era when all women knew their place and they would just go home and have lots of babies. And as one um, far right kind of incel poster on a forum put it, there was a, a period when every man was guaranteed a wife. Now we see the kind of construction of the fascist mythic past throughout, again, historical periods of fascism, but also in kind of modern far-right politics and even the sort of centre-right, mainstream-right politics. The most obvious example was Trump, make America great again. When is this again? What was this time period? It was a time, you know, of white male supremacy. Not that we're, you know, we still live in a white male supremacist society. 
we look at um, Victor Orban, who talks about kind of the 11th century Magyar warriors when, you know, men were men and they invaded countries and they knew what they were doing and women stayed home and had babies. And even in Britain, some of the language around Brexit and colonialism and rule Britannia and the cosplay of drinking warm ale in pubs while wearing tweed links to this idea of a mythic past that we need to get back to when everything was in the natural order. And the third pillar is this kind of need for a constant state of war. And this is a belief in fascism that men should be out on the battlefield, that they should be fighters, and women should be pinned to reproduction and generating the next generation of fighters. And I think the sort of obvious example where this has been playing out in recent years is the obsession on the kind of modern far right with war and the planning for what they call boogaloo or day X and the coming storm. This idea that we need to trigger a war in order to return to the mythic past and the natural order. And so I think the reason I wanted to sort of start out there in the book and also why I think it's worth having a conversation about it now is if we can understand how fascist ideology positions women and men and positions, you know, women's bodies in its thought structure, we can then see how this links to the way the far right talks about women, wants to undermine women's rights and ultimately wants to roll back progress so that women no longer have bodily autonomy. I'd like to pick up a little bit on this conception of uh, war and the centrality of war in the fascist understandings of how bodies should be arranged, uh, what bodies are fundamentally for this idea of uh, war as a form of natural order, a form of reasserting natural order, because it kind of, you know, gives the lie, the symmetry, the symmetry between men are for dying in battle and women are for dying in childbirth gives the lie to the notion of it being pro-life right and I'm wondering Edna I know you've done organizing around the issues of reproductive justice in the US and one of the huge flashpoints in recent times has of course been the stripping away of Roe versus Wade in North America so I'm wondering what has that process been like for you as a writer and organiser, sort of spectating this drag towards uh, the right when it comes to reproductive justice? Yeah, so as someone who's both a writer and an activist and someone who, when I was living in the United States, had been involved in various pro-abortion movements, more specifically in New York City, I saw firsthand over a decade ago how the far right was targeting working class and mostly women of color and people of color in the Bronx, Queens, and some of the outer boroughs. Um, and in many cases, the people who were anti-abortionists were coming from, at the time, Christian conservative backgrounds. Um, some of them were organized around this campaign called uh, so-called 40 Days for Life, and in some cases forming these crisis mobile pseudo clinics, ultimately outside of abortion clinics, intimidating people to get abortions. And so in many ways, these events were the canary in the coal mine for us to actually know that the far right and anti-abortionists were highly organized. And they were highly organized in the context in which the United States has become more hostile and punitive to abortion rights. 
Ever since the inception of Roe versus Wade, there's been counterattacks such as the Hyde Amendment, which made it difficult, which meant that the federal government, the U.S. federal government, could not provide and fund abortion for low-income people who had Medicaid. And then beyond that, uh, we also see an explosion in the incarceration of people who are femme. For example, the incarceration of women has increased by seven times since the 1970s. Beyond that, we've seen a rollback on social services for women, children, and working class families. Most of that being taken away under Clinton's presidency. And so if we think about many of the things that you bring up in your book regarding the rise of the far right, it's not just that it's happening in a vacuum as a far fringe phenomenon, as you argue in Bodies Under Siege. It's also occurring within the context of legislation and gaining legitimacy within governance. And I find that quite dangerous and pernicious. I was not in the United States when Roe versus Wade was overturned. I live here in, in Germany where it's still protected, but I, I still uh, obviously feel <laughs> a lot of anger towards it because when I was born in the 80s, it was possible for people to get an abortion in the state of Florida where I was born. And now that has been rolled back, especially under a very vitriolic <laughs> governor, um, DeSantis. So yeah, it's a, it's a complicated one that... Um, the overcriminalization of, of of people, the austerity in social services, and the virulent um, counterattacks by anti-abortionists has placed itself within political infrastructure of the United States. So all of those combined has made it quite difficult in the US. And there are, there are certain kind of gestures that um, both the kind of far right that conceives of itself as an insurgent force and a kind of, you know, the, the right as an established dominant hegemonic force within, you know, many, many nations across the world um, use, make towards things like uh, motherhood and the importance of family and the, you know, the innocence of the child, but actually digging... Um, really not that far into it we find like repeatedly a horror of certain forms of reproduction a horror of certain forms of motherhood and as coordinated state efforts through welfare stripping through criminalization in order to make certain forms of reproduction impossible or feel impossible certainly for many people and that kind of pincer movement between banning certain kinds of birth and forcing other ones I feel like is often neglected when we talk about reproductive freedom right and I'm curious Sean as to where this comes into the broader story of kind of a fascist banning of abortions right because they're not necessarily interested in banning all kinds of birth control across the board it's a very much a kind of a white supremacist project yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important that we focus on this as being a white supremacist project. I think one of the things that I try to argue in the book, and also as a woman, as a campaigner, as someone who believes in social justice and the right to bodily autonomy, is the idea of reproductive justice in itself. And that is the belief and the fight to ensure that every person, every family has the right to choose the kind of family that they want. This means on a really, on one level, making sure that people who want to have children have the social support that is needed to have those children. We know in the UK that there was a report last week about the number of abortions going up of wanted children because parents could not afford childcare. 
Like, so they're actually, you know, having to make a decision to terminate a pregnancy when it was a wanted child because the state structures are not in place to allow people to choose the families that they want to have. We also need to think about how reproductive justice is linked to housing, how it's linked to education, how it's linked to maternal health care. You know, the fact that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth in the UK because of ingrained systemic racism when it comes to health provision is is a reproductive justice issue. It's denying black women the choice and the ability to for their right to life <laughs> fundamentally and their right to have children. I also think, as you say, we've got to look at the, the rights of different kinds of families. You know, this is something really personal to me. I, I mean, I was raised by lesbians, so I understand the, the need for rainbow families. It's my, my family is a rainbow family. The idea that there is one kind of model family where, again, we go back to that idea of the natural order of the patriarchal authority and the, the subordinate woman is really dangerous, not just for you know, straight cis women, but for for LGBT women, for for people who identify as different genders, we need to be making sure that every family has the right to make the decisions about how they want to raise their children in a safe, responsible and caring and loving way and not be penalised for it because they're gay or lesbian or they are trans or queer or they don't want to have a child at all and they want to have access to abortion and contraception. So we definitely have to push back on reproductive injustice and I think it's really important we see it as a social justice issue as well as a healthcare issue when we talk about abortion and reproductive healthcare. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier Edna this idea this kind of discussion of how we are to conceive of this moment in Sean's book, there's mapping processes of infiltration from, you know, the definitely fringe groups, but there is also this consistent thread according to which these forms of reproductive unfreedom are much deeper and much older and much more fundamentally imbricated in the nature of the state than necessarily we would all like to imagine um, if we were to say that, you know, the only form of reproductive freedom is bans on abortion and then we can just um, make sure that doesn't happen and then all go home. So I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about those kind of knotted histories. Yeah, I think one of the things that I would say, and by virtue of having lived in the Caribbean, North America, and now Europe, um, I've had a chance to see what abortion policies look like in various places, just by as a person who's curious and who can potentially conceive and uh, being aware that it's what my options would be, especially if I wanted to terminate a pregnancy. And sadly, even when there are rights to have access to an abortion, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't come with some form of constraint. So for example, in the context of Germany, which is far better than the U.S. legally, it is still the case that there's Article 218, which um, the German constitution does define abortion as uh, murder. However, it is still tolerated to the point that which if you go to a physician, you have to go through a counseling session of sorts and then eventually you get a certificate approval and then if you're able to get that certificate you can carry it out however up until last year 
abortion providers were not allowed to advertise <laughs> whether they provided abortions in the German context. Um, and abortions are not freely provided. Um, and it can cost up to 300 euros, depending on where you are. And so the fact that abortion services are not free, but for example, fertility services are, goes to show you um, some of the things that Sean is bringing up, that is to say, the protonatalist policies of reproducing white Germans is far more favorable and supported by the state than providing free and uh, hassle-free access to abortion. And that's one example um, and one nation state within the UK, as you two would know and your audience would know as well, you can't just walk to a doctor and say, I want an abortion and it happens. It has. There's a bit of a counseling section. They have the doctor, the physician, has to determine if having a child would cause physical or mental risk of sorts. And so it's up to that provider. And if they decide for more reasons that they don't want to provide it, then you're out of luck. And this is important to know insofar that if I decided I have a cavity on you know in my tooth and I needed to get it removed, it's not as if I have to go to another dentist to consult with them to say, are you sure you want that cavity removed? I don't know if you really you know, can live without that cavity. And it, it's just in other medical realms, we don't have this condescension <laughs> that's applied to our bodies. And I just can't understand, except for the only reason to explain why abortion becomes a topic, a, a medical issue in which people's autonomy is undermined is precisely because of how the conservatives, how the far right, views sexism and women and people with wombs as unable to make decisions about their bodies. So in a way, um, I think that the, the, the lack of access on a global scale, even in countries that presumably have access, is something we also have to question. And to, to be basically unapologetic about demanding more. So in a way, instead of using the model of privacy, which is what Roe versus Wade was initially about in the 70s, there was an opportunity for feminists to say, no, actually, radical feminists said we, we need free abortions upon demand, no apology, no exceptions. And liberal feminists, sadly, were like, oh, maybe it's just a privacy medical issue. And, you know, that is now biting people in the ass, as they say, precisely because there wasn't that militancy. And I think that as people build movements on an international scale, we need to think on those terms. And, you know, beyond that, you know, in the same way that the far right has been organized with organizations, you know, such as the European Arm or um, Citizen Go and so forth, or even this 40 Days for Life. Now they, they weren't just in New York, they also have campaigns throughout the world. Well, the left and the pro-abortionists and you know reproductive justice activists also need to be organized so that we're able to not just be on the retreat, but to fight and win. And I think having that vision of international coordination is the only way possible forward because otherwise it can't just be, oh, it's a privacy issue or we shouldn't have to pay for it through our healthcare system. No, it should be provided as like any other medical procedure on demand. Mm. And there is this um, continual and sort of understandable in many ways impulse to frame abortion as something uh, like a necessary harm that takes place solely within the kind of private environs of patient and doctor to avert what could otherwise be utter disaster, right? And we have seen, of course, there are instances in which 
many cases of abortion fit that description and many people have lost their lives to the lack of provision of uh, safe access to abortion. But there is this other sense in which the uh, stripping of, you know, fundamental agency over these kinds of decisions, the idea of like a cooling off period fundamentally rewires the relationship of people who can potentially give birth to the rest of political life generally, to the idea of public space, to the idea of their own labour power. And this is something that the right seem to understand in a much more reliable way in some ways than um, certainly the liberal centre do. And I'm uh, wondering, Sean, what kind of um, uh, sort of insights are we to glean from this sort of funhouse mirror of, you know, this violent way in which the far right talk about women's bodies, what they're intending, what their political project is, is setting to be like. Do you mean what can we learn about their project or what can we learn from them to do ours better? Sort of both really. So what can we learn about their project and also what can their project tell us about, I guess, where we need to orientate ourselves more and where we need to be, as Edmund saying, more radical, more demanding and not just treating abortion like a sort of medical thing that averts certain forms of private disaster. So I think the, the fundamental thing we need to understand about the far right project for when it comes to abortion is this white male supremacist drive to, you know, overturn kind of any forms of progress, to maintain white male supremacy and to entrench it. You know, they want to see women out of the public sphere and back into the domestic sphere. They want to have control over women's bodies. And that extends to issues around domestic and sexual violence. You know, far-right parties across Europe are pushing to undo protections against gender-based violence. You know, they want to get rid of laws that provide women with security and protections that could, you know, help get women into the public sphere and out of the domestic sphere and out of harmful and dangerous marriages. So it's about control. And I think one of the other interesting things that we're seeing on the far right in relation to this is um, an attack on children's rights, because they see children's rights as being something that usurps parental and, again, patriarchal authority, and that it's kind of the state incurring on, you know, the father's role within the home and children having rights and having protections is, is something that needs to be pushed back on. We're seeing this increasingly in some of the kind of far-right petitioning platforms and places like that. I think, you know, on the most sort of darkest, the, the most extreme edges of this is the desire for what Richard Spencer, and I think I get this right, called ethical ethnic cleansing. I think that was the term that he used. Obviously, that is not a real thing. There is no such thing as ethical ethnic cleansing. But it's this desire for, you know, a kind of the war, the genocide, the violent repatriation of black and global majority people out of what they want to create as their pure ethno states. And I think we need to take that really seriously. That was one of the drivers of the people that were there on the 6th of January in 2021, this desire to reignite a civil war and to have Day X and Boogaloo and to, you know, just do these terrible, terrible, horrific things. And so there's a, yeah, there's a huge amount there about control, both over control, about violence, about the sort of genocidal impulses that are, are throughout kind of far-right rhetoric and far-right conversations online. In terms of sort of how we we fight back and how what we can learn 
is exactly what Edna is saying. We need to have really strong transnational organising. We need to recognise that there is a threat to abortion rights, that, you know, that just because we've got slightly crappy laws in the in Britain, but, you know, we can generally get an abortion if we need one, um, isn't enough. We need to be fighting for decriminalisation. We need to be fighting for abortion to be recognised not as something governed by criminal law, but as something governed as healthcare. We need to have, you know, strong bonds of cross-border organising uh, with countries that have had successful pro-abortion movements, such as in Argentina and in various states in Mexico, where we've seen, like, incredible progress and incredible bravery of, of people, women, people who can get pregnant, fighting for their rights and winning those rights. We need to be working in solidarity with, you know, activists who are operating in countries where abortion is criminalised or where abortion is really contested, and yet who are doing incredible work in the grassroots and on the ground to get information out to people about contraception, sexuality, sexual safety, sexual violence and abortion rights. And we need to really think about language. And like Edna was saying, using the term pro-abortion is something that I feel absolutely passionate about. Like we should, we've always been like, oh, it's, you know, it's pro-choice because don't want to say the scary abortion word but actually if we believe that abortion is healthcare, if we believe that abortion is something that you should be able to access because it's part of your reproductive health care it's not really you don't need a euphemism <laughs> you can you can be bold you can just say this is what I believe and the far right and and the centre right are very very clever about the language they use when it comes to to women's rights and reproductive rights. You know they know exactly how to operate and how to co-opt human rights language or healthcare language, and yet we can still be very nervous about using positive, positive, strong, bold language ourselves. And so, you know, I when I was writing the book, I used to say like people talk about the different networks and how they're international and how they work across borders, and it's like. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing that. The left should be doing that. We should be doing that much more. We're, you know, unfortunately, they're doing it for, for evil and we could do it for, for rights and justice. But yeah, so sorry, that was quite a convoluted answer, but no, hopefully no. it made a bit of sense. <laughs> no, absolutely, it did. So, so much there to dig into. And I think what I would like to uh, jump in on is uh, yeah, this, this idea of uh, the kind of like broader sort of white supremacist project, because you outline the centrality of the conspiracy theory of uh, the Great Replacement as a great driver, both in the ways in which the, the kind of fringe right and the mainstream right understand their political project, and also something that is understood to be the uh, opposite of migration, right? They understand migration and the kind of higher birth rates supposedly amongst a global majority people to be a fundamental civilizational threat and a forced birth for white women and often sterilization for non-white women as being a kind of like a fundamental strategic corrective. And Edna, I'm curious about how the rhetoric around migration gets kind of wrapped into a kind of a broader sort of structural radicalization towards the right in a lot of institutions like national governments, the EU. These are big dogs that we're talking about. Yeah, so I think... One framework that has helped me think about the rise of the far right and more specifically xenophobia, especially as how it was utilized in the 
21st century is uh, Sarah Ferris's feminine nationalism or that term being used within the far right. Um, there are so-called feminists who are white supremacists, ultimately, who've used that language of feminism to make anti-Muslim comments, to make anti-Black comments, and to really uh, prevent people from migrating to to Europe. And with that, um, there there's also been, in the context of some of those leaders of those far-right movements, in the German context, we have a far-right party called Alternative für Deutschland, Alternative for Germany, which has actually gone back and forth between being third and some cases is fourth popular and recent polls have shown that they might be contenders for the second most popular party here in Germany. And part of what, what is going on in the context of the German anti-migrant rhetoric, as well as the um, the migrant reproduction rate, is that they use migrants as a scapegoat to say that they will be replaced. And I don't, I don't even like this language because it feels quite uncomfortable. And it's very similar to language that has been used in the U.S. And as you know, the person who coined the term Camus, who, not Upper Camus, <laughs> the, the not, just so Sorry, people because yeah. I, I hope that people don't, and I don't think they're they're related, um, but uh, uh, yeah, far right French conservative, who is also a writer, and he you know, coined that term and it has been used by the likes of Tucker Carlson in the U.S. Um, to people here, even in continental Europe. And and part of what is, you know, quite disturbing about it is that although the term is relatively new in terms of the great replacement, the policies to curtail the reproductive capacities of working class people, of people of color, has been going on for over a century. And we see this in the context of the U.S., where, for example, indigenous people were disproportionately sterilized. Once slavery was over, African-Americans were disproportionately sterilized. In fact, it's been the case that 43% of the women who have been sterilized in the United States are Black women. And just to give you a sense of why that, that statistic is disturbing, is that African-Americans make up about 12% of the population. So that is grossly out of proportion. And then even Puerto Ricans and people of, of Mexican descent as well within the California context were uh, being disproportionately sterilized as well. And you can't not look at what is, you know, the, the rhetoric or this um, fear mongering of the Great Replacement without also thinking about the early 20th century eugenics movement and how that language of, um, and racialized language, uh, which was tied to pseudoscience, which was tied to colonial outreach in some ways, all of that is inter intertwined. And what it means is that this is the moment in which people cannot give <laughs> these people an inch. Anyone with a conscience, and whether they're in Europe or elsewhere, cannot allow the far right to use the language of anti-migrants, as has been the case in the UK, even with elected lead. Well, actually, no one voted for Sunak, so yeah, I'm like, I, I, he wasn't even elected. I was like, wait, you don't actually have a democracy. Yeah, yeah it's, it's um, funny so to wake I'll, up and remember I'll, that. It's, yeah, it's bananas. I'll rewind that for a bit. Um, you have someone in leadership yes. in the UK who is a who's who's clearly um, uh, anti-migrant and also someone who's an ethnic minority, and it's such a for me, a contradiction to see, and yet this person is more willing to align himself with the ruling class that if he didn't have the capital that he did, he would not be put into that position or you know, be able to be part of that party in that way. But yeah, so I think that one of the things that 
if we're going to have a pro-choice, pro-abortion movement, similar to the things that you said, Sean, we have to create the conditions that allow people to have and decide the kinds of families they want. We have to create the conditions so that people can live. We have to create the conditions so people can migrate without dying in the sea or the channel. And we have to just assure that we have a solidarity, not just in a rhetorical sense, but shaming the people in positions of power who have created this this crisis to begin with. And, you know, people have said the reason that there are migrants coming to Europe is because Europeans went extracted and in some cases stole people. <laughs> and so it's no accident that um, people would want to migrate but we have to do better and ensure that those um, individuals are not vilified in the process. And it's really curious about how when you dive into the um, forums and the, you know, IRL groups that these people use to organize their horrendous projects, um, how very on the nose this is. Right. Um, and it's very um, perhaps shouldn't be shocking. Perhaps this is a sign of my endearing naivety that I've still retained the capacity to be shocked by this. But the language of, you know, the great replacement, the idea of the minoritization, quote unquote, of white people in the UK, certainly is well, it's you know, it's, it was in the Telegraph the other day. It keeps being in the Telegraph. It's in the Times. This is not something that people see fit to be coy about. And if that is what is publishable on headlines, uh, not that the British press has covered itself in any glory in terms of standards of what can make a headline, I am hmm, somewhat uh, doubtfully curious as to about what that research process was for you, Sean, in when you delved into the depths of the, these organising groups and these online forums. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so... There's nothing like spending a day on an incel forum, I can tell you that much. Um, you have to have, um, I had to come up with quite a lot of strat like strategies to have strong boundaries when looking at this content, you know, so that you don't end up going down a rabbit hole where it's the middle of the night and you've been looking at incel forums for 18 hours and you're, you know, in tears. And so, But it, it was really interesting. And I, I think what I was really curious about, so is how they framed abortion. Like, what, what do incels think about abortion? What do red pill communities think about abortion? And what do sort of the far-right organisations and leaders, particularly in the UK, think about abortion? And, and it kept coming back to either the sort of mythic past and the natural order and how that linked to great replacement theory. I spent, you know, there was one meme that really stood out that was posted by... A, a sort of a far-right influencer in, in the UK where he posted a cartoon of a maternity clinic that was had a queue of women in hijabs and a, a cartoon of an abortion clinic that had um, white women and was like, this is white genocide. And this absolute obsession that the far-right has with genocide, the amount of times that that word is used over and over again, both in this sort of idea that they are victims of it, but also this kind of fantasy of, of per per perpetrating forms of genocide. But I think it's really important to go back to what Edna was saying as well, in that this is happening, yeah, on these extremist forums. It's, it's horrible, it's really disturbing, and it's, it's very dangerous. But if it was just happening in kind of small, dark corners of the internet, and everyone knew that it was nonsense, and we, were all, we could all just get on with our life and let them kind of 
talk amongst themselves and then get bored and fade away. The problem is that we are seeing the rhetoric of the far right, sometimes in more polite language, but the meanings are still there in mainstream politics, in mainstream media. I think one of the sort of big moments for me recently, and unfortunately the book doesn't cover this because it only happened like two weeks ago. And, you know, mm. like... So it's a struggle of, of doing a very timely book. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was the National Conservatism Conference. And four years ago, a Conservative MP speaking at that conference was really in trouble. You know, he was... There was demands that he apologised for standing up next to people with such extremist views. And it was seen as something, you know, to use a kind of, let's say... Tory MP term, like not quite cricket to be in these spaces. And now in 2023, you've got the Home Secretary standing next to people who are using the term cultural Marxism and throwing it around as if it's, you know, something that we should all just be accepting. And I refuse to believe in 2023 that there's not a single Conservative MP that does not know what cultural Marxism is standing for, that it's an anti-Semitic term that was born in the far right. There's no excuses at this point, as there may have been when it was less kind of in the public domain. I think, you know, when I was doing the research for the book, I was looking at people like Steve King, who were using the term replacement in speeches and talking about how American culture was being replaced and this replacement is being aided by the number of abortions. We've seen Victor Orban, who I kind of, I don't know, give the sort of unsavoury credit as being the one that made great replacement theory mainstream in politics because he started using the word replace, replace, replace and referring to, you know, wanting to create a Christian Hungary and a Christian Europe. And back to the National Conservatism Conference, there was a moment when a Conservative MP said that the only thing liberal individualism had failed to deliver was babies. And to me, that was like, Again, I, I might give, can give her the benefit of the doubt that perhaps she doesn't spend her time reading far-right terrorist manifestos, and, and I have done. But this idea that individualism and women's individualism and sort of selfishness and, you know, this kind of failure to, to be the good woman who does what she's supposed to do is something that is completely rooted in far-right thinking about reproduction and women's bodies. And so it's really scary that, you know, a few years ago I was on these incel forums and far-right telegram and red pill spaces, seeing this language and how ugly it is and the meanings behind it. And now I'm seeing that language coming out in in mainstream political conversation. And that's why we have to be aware and that's why we have to constantly be fighting and defending reproductive rights because they can so easily be rolled back. Mm. There seems to be this horrifying symmetry between the ways in which the kind of normative ideas of, you know, like natural order under capitalism uh, contain within it the kind of the spark of um, absolute violence and actually the fact of absolute violence within it in many cases as well, in the same way that um, normative logics of, you know, capital accumulation and, you know, putting people to death at borders and in prisons contains within it the spark of fascism and uh, I'm I guess I'm really curious as to how we should conceive of this moment like do we do we talk about the rising far right do we talk about an insurgent far right or is it just a state under which we live. I'm just kind of wondering, like, what... Um, it's a kind of very depressing question, I realise, but, like, at, at, at what point, given 
the the fact of this kind of cultural dominance and political dominance over the ways in which bodies are legislated at what point do we say it's here edna um (laughs) i think that's a lot to take in mostly because there are ways and i'm gonna i guess talk a little bit about the way legislation has shifted things to the far right especially in the context of the past year so there have been 25 states about in the U.S. that have enacted pre-viability abortion bans since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Um, so places like Iowa, Montana, abortion has remained legal um, pending judicial stays. But those in some of those many states in which you have these abortion bans, you also have bans on gender-affirming care for minors. And it's no accident that places like Florida, where it's like, don't say gay, quote unquote, don't say gay bill, is also recently shortened the length of time in which someone could get abortion. And Florida was one of the last southern states, or at least that far south, where people could be able to get an abortion. And so I, I would say that the it is no accident that many of the states that are anti-abortion are also um, anti-trans and a lot of the legislation is happening as like part of the anti-feminist, anti-trans quote-unquote panic that is going on within the U.S. context, but also even beyond. Nevertheless, one thing I I would say that I do find kind of hopeful is that people are, um, they are organizing. People are using the terms like reproductive justice. Parents are fighting and defending their children there are platforms where they're able to kind of fight back, not just virtually, but also in the streets and challenging school boards, because in the U.S. context, there are there's a lot of local autonomy for school boards, which is how the far right has been able to also use that to say we want to ban books. There is a tug and pull. There is a lot of polarization, but it's not it's not a foregone conclusion mm-hmm. that they're going to win all the way. That's what we like to hear. Yeah, well, I, like, I'm not living there for a reason, right. but <laughs> reading enough about what's going on in the mobilization and to see that people are fighting back. And I think that there's something to be said about having gone through a pandemic in which the state was nearly absent <laughs> um, or mostly absent in the U.S. context, people have had to kind of fend for themselves and realize, okay, we need mutual aid. We need to figure out how to work together. And also, at the end of the day, the, you know, attacking trans children or women or people with uteruses, at the, that is not the problem. The problem is people cannot afford to live. The problem is people don't have universal health care. And, you know, I hadn't said this, and but I'm sure you, you know, the majority of people in the United States do want abortion to be legal. The majority of the people in the United States want free health care. <laughs> like the majority of people, like they're to the left of the uh, the people who, who are representing them. And it's no accident because, precisely because lobbyists and the far right have been able to infiltrate the political system to fund these initiatives and to coordinate. Knowing that the majority of U.S. citizens do want abortion rights and do want health care gives me a little bit of hope precisely because it actually says that they want people to live freely and um, have their bodily autonomy respected. Can I jump in as well because I think it's um, really important to talk about hope and it's really important to talk about the potential for change and the strength that we do have as a movement 
I think at the moment we're in this position of black backlash and a period of backlash against progressive politics, women's rights, LGBT rights, black and global majority people's rights, migrant rights, all the sort of human rights context. And this isn't uncommon. Like every time women have kind of gained some political power or some sort of sexual freedoms or some economic freedoms, we see a backlash and that backlash always focuses on reproductive rights and, you know, women's right to abortion and rights over their own bodies. This happened in 1860s, it's happened in 1920s Italy, 1930s Germany, the the kind of Reaganite policies of the 1980s that were very much kind of anti-feminist and trying to roll back the progress of the women's liberation movement. So what we're going through now is not unfamiliar territory. It's something that we've seen in the past and we can learn from the past on how to defeat it and how to fight back. But I also think it's really important to remember that across the world, we're seeing really galvanised pro-abortion movements that are winning. You know, like I said earlier, the the great victory in Argentina, the sort of conversations that are happening in Chile, state after state after state in Mexico, um, legalising abortion. Ireland in 2018, like Northern Ireland in 2019, (laughs) Even in the UK, we've had big wins on access to abortion, including, you know, Northern Ireland being the the big one, but also access to telemedicine so that women or pregnant people no longer have to take abortion pills in medical premises. They can take them in their own homes. The implementation of buffer zones, which, again, felt like we were something we were just banging against and never getting anywhere. Now that's happened. And constantly we're seeing moves from mostly left um, MPs, but also sort of liberal conservative MPs to decriminalise abortion in Britain. And I think when Roe happened, when Dobbs was decided, it you know, it sends a signal to the anti-abortion movement around the world that they can be triumphant, that they can, you know, when America goes, it's the big one and it's, it's, and it's horrifying. But at the same time, since 1973, 53 states have liberalised their abortion laws and only four have rolled their abortion laws back. And so... I think when it feels really dark and really desperate and like everything's going the wrong way, we can kind of have look at the sort of the, the global picture, look at what organisations and movements are doing around the world to improve access to abortion. And there is hope, there is positivity, there is a fight back. And like you say, Edna, it's like we don't have to let them win. <laughs> they, they don't get to have this. <laughs> like, you know, we can win too. And I think that's that's actually how I end the book. Is like we 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 can win. We can win this. There's there's no reason that they get to to go home triumphant and our rights are left in the dust. Yeah, I think um, it's such a fascinating case for me. The case of the Republic of Ireland in 2018 because it was in some ways the template for the kinds of funding that you you talk about in terms of the sharing of like anti-gender resources across the Anglophone world, through Europe, Russia, some places in uh, Central and South America. There was so much resources flung at uh, this campaign, flung at the campaign to try and prevent the progress of reproductive rights. And it lost. And it lost pretty darn decisively as well. Source of huge inspiration as are the many, many incredible uh, movements around the world, which are um, very much in the fight back. But I am also left with this question, which is why would the Koch brothers or another billionaire or, you know, an aristocrat in Germany or an oligarch in Russia 
be interested in this in particular? Why do they consider the pushback against reproductive justice to be somewhere where they want to put their money? I'm just curious about what that strategy tells us about this moment in history. Edna? So I cannot uh, get into the minds and hearts of people, oligarchs or Koch brothers or (laughs) any of those people. Probably speaks well to to your character. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't, I don't roll in those circles, um, at all. However, what I would say is that if at the very core of it, if we cannot decide what we can do with our bodies, whether or not we can have children, how many children we can have, can we really be free? (laughs) Like, I, and I think that the, the attack on people's ability to reproduce, whether it was, historically in you know Angela Davis wrote about this in Women Race and Class Dorothy Roberts wrote about this in Killing the Black Body and so many black feminists like Loretta Ross have written about this history of what it, it mean for enslaved black women not to be able to control their reproduction mostly because their offspring were considered property they weren't even considered their child and so on a very violent level at that time under chattel slavery, reproducing Black people in a future free labor force was profitable to the slave-ruling class that relied upon their labor. In the 21st century context in which, you know, there's been so many progress, like we can, if people get married, they can get divorced. If they are working outside the home, they can have their own money and decide their own terms. And, And if you say, well, if you have a child, then therefore you can't get an abortion, then you basically roll back the possibility and all the progress that we've been able to maintain in society. And I I feel like that is the root of, you know, the, what these oligarchs are doing is to limit the freedoms that we have gained (laughs) over the past 100, 200 years, and suddenly make it so that, um, whether they call it the great replacement theory and, and um, uh, wanting to promote the reproduction of, of white families or even just, you know, limiting the ability for people to have full bodily autonomy. I think it's a question of freedom. It's a question of really getting to the core of making people feel less than in a society in which we learned how to fight for our freedom and ultimately we have to keep doing so. Mm. Off the back of that, I, I would like to know a little bit more, Sean, from yourself about mapping those linkages of power and resource and strategies um, between people across the globe. Of course, your main study is in Europe and North America, but these are very much global links between people who are invested in this project of unfreedom. Like, how does that operate? So you see a lot of people who are, you know, they're all on each other's boards for a start. Like, um, if you look at the kind of mainstream anti-gender movements, you see a lot of organisations where there's crossover and collaboration. So one of the kind of big anti-gender movers and shakers at the moment is Citizen Go, which is um, a petitioning platform that petitions from everything on getting rid of Roe to not liking a Pantene advert because it's got a trans woman in it. I mean, they they do the full gamut of, of issues And you look at their board and they've got Brian Brown on the board, who is the head of the World Congress of Families, which is the big annual global conference 
that brings together anti-LGBT, anti-abortion politicians, activists, campaigners to, you know, strategize and discuss things. If you look at the Political Network for Values, which is another kind of emerging organization, you can see that the guys from Citizen Go are on, involved with that, but also is as also is Brian Brown, and then also someone from Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the one of the big sort of legal charities in the States that, you know, was very influential in rolling back abortion rights and and getting sort of pushing the Dobbs decision. And then again, this is something that we can we see on the left. Like, you know, we we work together, we collaborate, we go to conferences, we talk to each other. But I mean, when you, I always felt like the meme of the guy with the cigarette dangling from his mouth and the board with all the red string and his like wild eyes. It's like, I've worked it all out. They're all connected. Like, they kind of are all connected. Um, and then you see like the politics. So if you look again at World Congress of Families, which is had Victor Orban as its keynote speaker in 2017, had Matteo Salvini speaking in 2019. You know, they, they are bringing these their organisations closer and closer to politicians so then they can get their agendas in front of of political decision makers. They invite, you know, media celebrities who are in favour of their agenda as well. So they're really, they're really good at networking. As I say, there's a lot of sharing of boards. Up until Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Citizen Go had as a board member a guy called Alexei Komov who worked for an oligarch who was very close to Putin he was also the Russian representative at the World Congress of Families. So once you start, it's all very embedded and enmeshed. But again, it doesn't mean that we can't fight back and we can't form our own networks and we can't form our own cross-border solidarity organisations and and support one another from a grassroots to up to the high political level. You know, we can learn from these tactics and, and use them for our, our own progressive human rights agenda. And I just really also wanted to... I mean, I'm sure you could see me like nodding and nodding along at everything Edna was saying. But this point about freedom is so fundamental. Like we cannot be free if we don't have bodily integrity. And one of the reasons that the far right is so obsessed with, you know, getting rid of abortion is because of this horror they have of freedom and this absolute desire to get rid of, of people's freedoms. And so I think it's really important that we talk about that as a sort of fundamental cause and driver and recognise the importance of bodily autonomy to having freedom and to being able to live freely. Can I say one thing? Oh, please, <laughs> say many. Yeah, no, thank you. And I also agree with um, like everything you just said. Um, I would also add that one thing that I found in reading some of the works of like far-right individuals who are anti-choice is that they lack imagination <laughs> <laughs> and are and they're, they're very dull people overall boring and they probably have horrible sex lives but um i've been recently turning to just reading the works of susan sontag and and the latest collection on women that kind of focuses on some of her essays that she talked about feminism and such the debates that she had there's one particular section that thinks about camp and guerrilla theater and she said you know the, the ways that in which People should just be contemptuous in their performance of, you know, in their way of uh, challenging sexism. So some of the things she she recommended women should do is they should whistle at men in the street, raid beauty parlors. They should conduct telephone harassment campaigns against male psychiatrists who have sexual relationships with their women patients, organize beauty contests for men, and put up feminist candidates for all public offices, and so forth and so forth. It just, it's just... Like some of the things that she's describing, there's just uh, how 
sexist the world we live in actually is, is like, the double standards that persist. And for us to really play and imagine other alternatives, whether or not, I don't think she did any of these things in public necessarily, but it goes to show that even within the context of, in my, you know, I identify as a feminist, but as a feminist, I, I don't want to be as dull as the far right, as boring as they are. I do want to play with imagination and I do want to be campy with how I also work through the world that I would want to live in and obviously one in which we're all fully free. Mm, mm, the, the promise that it seems to offer, even it's, you know, supposedly chosen like sovereign subjects, which is, you know, a very kind of limited idea of a kind of like class-based freedom underwritten by this common property of like having a right to women's bodies. It's having a wife and babies and regular old job and kind of living the sort of existence that we know in this very well-documented way is deeply alienating for a lot of people who undergo it. I mean, we just need to look at the fact that, you know, millions of housewives needed to be like actively tranquilized. These are the kind of angels of the home. These are the sort of um, people who were supposedly venerated in this very sort of narrow and hateful way, of course, by certain forms of the far right you just think like okay so how is that offer appealing for you like I'm, I'm curious as to what it's supposed to give its you know its supposed agents of the future uh, Sean you've you know apologies spent loads of time reading uh, these kind of offers so what do you make of that and they're really obsessed with the homestead mm -hmm. they're really into farming <laughs> and, um, like, which is fine you know there's nothing wrong with farming but yeah so it's like you've got to get your homestead sorted out and then your, your nice wife can get a nice natural tan from being out on the homestead they're really into that but um I mean the obvious thing that it offers men is is power like you know access to women's bodies that you can have you know every that in thing every man is guaranteed a wife you know that you can have sexual access to a woman's body that you can have complete reproductive control that you're free to do harm to your wife because there's no such thing as gender-based violence laws anymore. It gives men a promise that they, the thing that they think have been stolen from them, the, the idea that they're owed something, that they're owed some kind of, you know, entitlement is the, the far right will go to them and go like, yes, you can have it. You can, you can have white male supremacy. Like I say, we, we already have white male supremacy. This is the world that we live in, but they kind of create this myth that, men are being oppressed, that white people are under threat from genocide and and they will give you the power, they will give you your power, you know, back, take back control, that kind of message. And for women, it's a bit more complicated. I mean, I'm really fascinated by how the far right recruits women because it's like, yeah, we're a movement that hates you. Come on board. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All welcome it's apart so from the fact of being welcome, yes. Yeah, yeah. but they've done this very clever tactic really of... of positioning feminism as an enemy of women and saying that feminism has like destroyed women's happiness and that the reason you're you know exhausted is because feminism told you to do it all that you know and they just come up with this kind of straw man idea of feminism that is not really related to any feminist movement that I know and sort of pin all women's dissatisfaction onto it and say like you come with us and you can be a white goddess you know, you can live on the homestead, you'll be worshipped by these men who will just adore you for the for the virtue of you having a body with reproductive potential. 
And you can just, you know, you can leave all that stress and bother and upset behind and just come and be be worshipped and adored. Of course, it doesn't work like that, because if you are being worshipped and adored for virtue of having a fertile body, ultimately all you are is a body. And the language that the far right uses about women is so derogatory, even when it's trying to be complimentary, but also... I mean, I interviewed women that had left the far right who talked about how they were referred to as empty egg boxes by the time they, t- if they didn't have a baby by the time they were 30, that there was this absolute fear among far right women of turning 30 and not having a husband, not having a baby. And, you know, issues around, like, women who've left the far right have talked about sort of, you know, issues around domestic violence and coercive control, because again, the aim is to have ultimate power and authority over women and over women's bodies. And therefore, you are really vulnerable to domestic abuse. There's stuff in like tradwife culture where they talk about the correct ways to discipline a woman and from, you know, spanking to making her write lines like she's a child in in a Bart Simpson in the classroom. Um, And so this real normalisation of male superiority and male authority and and ultimately male violence is, is is what they offer. Yeah, and, and sort of running as a thread underneath this is the framework of eugenics, right? That kind of old sort of structural lie that very much baked into racial capitalism in many ways about the, 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 the role of the nation state and the role of kind of the families within it, correct families within it, is to produce a certain form of of citizen and that kind of form of citizenship is very much tied to having a certain kind of body, a certain kind of productive body. And um, I, I would, I guess, I'd love to bring in this this issue of the productive body and, and, and disability when we talk about reproductive justice, because often, even on the left, you get the sort of boogeyman of what if the unborn fetus is disabled as a kind of limit case and I'm always troubled by that perpetually troubled by that you know that being the thing that we have to uh, beat back the tide that's trying to take away our rights and I'm just uh, uh, curious Edna I'd love to ask you about that like how we think about our our bodies in perhaps a, a kinder way that that doesn't always reinforce the kind of necessity of health and productivity in this is very strict, alienating sense. Uh, well, first of all, I would say that if people haven't already to read the works of disability scholars, people who are disabled, who've been doing the organizing, the writing, the theorizing. Uh, so for example, Alice Wong's Disability Visibility Um, is an anthology that provides first story and first person accounts about disabilities. And one of the things when I was reading that text that I found quite shocking is that within the U.S., one in five people are actually disabled in some capacity. Um, And that ranges from physical disabilities to mental health disabilities. And even within my family structure, like the nuclear family, we do, there is one person within my immediate family who is disabled. And so that is something that we have to kind of live through. And what ends up happening in that context is because it's the U.S., the state doesn't provide 
nearly enough of what it should to ensure that families are able to cope and provide the care that a family needs. Because of course we can provide love and emotional support, but there's also material support that people need generally if they are disabled or have different, are part of um, a, a spectrum. But all of that is just to say that the disabilities question is important to be thinking about how do we redesign society so that those with various physical or mental or emotional abilities are able to function as best as they can. Nevertheless, I, in the same way that I'm very (laughs) pro-abortion, pro-migrant, I don't give an inch to people who are, make comments around disabilities to say, well, we should give these, you know, we should, um, uh, we should, we shouldn't, (laughs) sorry, let me, let me, I don't want to play with pseudo-eugenics or proto-eugenics or anything that touches upon it um, and to really give people the chance to live their lives fully as opposed to me determining based off of a physical or mental or other trait that someone's not worthy to live because someone could easily say that I as a person who is (laughs) shorter (laughs) am not like you know like short people shouldn't uh, survive or function because they can't reach the top shelf like I I would feel very offended (laughs) by that but I clearly um, am here nevertheless I would say that um, ultimately if within the context of um, the pro-abortion movement um, it should be thinking comprehensively about justice and providing people with all the services that they need, funding programs that provide uh, services to people with disabilities. Luckily, with the, the there is American Disabilities Act, which actually in many cases does provide for barrier-free access and all kinds of circumstances for testing and such um, that I'm glad still exist. But again, it's not enough and it's not the kind of funding and infrastructure that's necessary. I do wish that in the European context, for example, here in Berlin, there are very few buildings or older like that are barrier free. And so people who are in wheelchairs can't even make them their way in so easily. Nevertheless, the disabilities question, I think, is an important one, though I do think that there should be more theorizing around how we can talk about it so that it doesn't create this dynamic whereby people use the language of eugenics or use the language of talking about certain traits to therefore justify action. Mm. And I, I'm wondering what you think um, about that, Sean, because uh, there is this kind of a very consistent focus on the idea of the strength and like the soldierly body and the kind of also like the working man's body as uh, a, the central unit of fascism, the central unit of uh, how these people kind of imagine the future unfurling. So I think it's, again, it's it's thinking about re- about justice and, and reproductive justice. It's it's about reframing what we think of as productive, as you say. Like what does it mean to be a productive person? What does what how do people bring value? How do we quantify people's value? And we've we've been very stuck as a society in thinking that that value and worth is 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 linked to a kind of very specific type of pro- productivity. I think the kind of the fascist idea of of what a man should be and what a woman should be is obviously linked to, you know, just sort of disgust and contempt for anyone that doesn't fit a sort of alpha male role. And yeah, and I think 
it's it's why it's so important when we're talking about abortion rights that we we focus on that idea again of reproductive justice of of making sure that everybody has the chance to live a full you know supported life that we have a functioning welfare state that we have functioning healthcare systems that we make sure every family has the support they need to have the family that they want and not to try you know not to to create these artificial limits and I also think it's um, it's interesting because obviously the anti-abortion movement really weaponizes disability and uses the sort of fetal anomaly clauses to to try and sort of push back against abortion rights and can see it as a sort of thin end of the wedge. You know, we've seen bills being tabled in Parliament to try and remove some of the fetal anomaly exemptions for later term abortions. And but none of that is coming with a like, and so we're going to improve healthcare, we're going to improve access, we're going to improve, get rid of PIP and actually have a, a, a better, more, more sustainable, more caring welfare system for disabled people and their families. And particularly in Poland, I remember when they got rid of the fetal anomaly exemption, I was talking to a Polish journalist who was saying that there'd been a protest to in, increase the... Um, carers allowance for for parents and carers of disabled children and they were sort of did a sit-in in parliament and the MPs were just like walking past them and ignoring them you know there was obviously no change in in the carers allowance and at the same time they're saying well we have to get rid of this exemption because we care so much about disabled people and disabled people's rights so there's a real hypocrisy be a real hypocrisy at play and you know it's not it's like as you say we need more theorizing but we also need to listen to what disabled people are saying about abortion and, and not let these sort of anti-abortion organisations and politicians take that narrative away and, and weaponise it for their own use. And I'm uh, consistently blown away by the the ways in which um, a, a lot of their projects uh, strike us at first as hypocrisy, but then appear to us again as, you know, very much part of the same project of uh, cruelty, right? It's often the cruelty is the point. So it feels like a lot of the time when, you know, when we're talking to, I guess, maybe undecided people, you know, using you know, emotive appeals, talking about the very real cases in which um, pregnant people lose their lives on operating tables, um, lose their lives when they don't have access to proper healthcare as they should. Those claims fall on deaf ears in the same way as, a, as pointing out that a soldier dying in battle would fall on the deaf ears of a general. They'd be like, yep, that's that's war, kiddo. That's kind of what we're doing here. And I'm, uh, I guess, when we're looking at these cases, I guess I would like to know from from both of you how you would like to, you know, use that imaginative capacity that the right is so bad at using, and start arguing for that more thoroughgoing reproductive justice, Edna. Yeah. So. Um, one of the things that I think is important for me uh, as a writer is just to do the diligent work of reading um, about these histories of abortion, of people resisting, and people who did so on their own terms, whether that be using Mexican yam, for example, as an aborticide and like at war, in some cases, enslaved people just refusing to carry preg pregnancy to term. 
or even just reading poetry by African-American poets like Gwendolyn Brooks has a poem called Mothers where it specifically starts off by talking about abortion and the works of Annie Renaud cleaned out her novel in that she wrote in the early 70s. Alice Walker has an amazing story called The Abortion that she published several years before uh, Roe vs. Wade um, <laughs> called The Abortion. <laughs> uh, like, There's no uh, ambiguity in what that story is about. And just seeing both within creative literature, nonfiction, manifestos, at the ways in which people have been able to document how they've been able to terminate pregnancies, how they've learned from each other to share information with friends, family members, relatives, and lovers to you know be able to figure out how to terminate pregnancy. The fact that we, at this point in human history, have the medical capacity resources and knowledge to have safe abortions and yet it is not universally applied and provided for free to people just goes to show you how cruel (laughs) in a way this world is to people who have a womb um, and suggest the, the, the fact that it's assumed that people have to carry pregnancies out to term again is I find that to be quite cruel Nevertheless, the stories that I read, the activists that I speak to, and even just the movements that do win, whether it's a small win or a large one at the nation state, can be quite inspiring to say, you know, we we have the ability to overturn the regression that has been put forth by uh, policies like Roe v. Wade are being overturned. And you know, the fact that chattel slavery does not exist anymore, goes to show that if we can overturn that, then we could hopefully gain free uh, universal access to abortion on demand. So the imagination is very important, but that also means learning, reading, agitating, and, you know, just maintaining that hope. Mm. Sean, final thoughts? If we look at, um, you know, Ireland and the, the, um, the success of the Together for Yes campaign, which was so much based on storytelling. It was about getting women and people who can become pregnant and people who've had abortions to tell their stories and to talk about the impact on their lives, to talk about what it's like to carry a pregnancy to term when you know your fetus isn't viable and that you're going to have to have a stillbirth, like what that cruelty feels like, to talk about what it's like to like have to kind of come up with excuses to not go to work and not tell anyone where you're going and get the money to get across to England and then have to get an abortion that you don't have to pay for and then have to go home like bleeding on a plane because you can't take any more time off work and you haven't got childcare. Like we really had this moment where women's stories were being told in a way to provoke change and not in the kind of way that we've had it with something like for me too where it was like oh we've got we bear our pain we bear our pain we bear our pain and nothing really changes this was actually like how can we use women's voices how can we platform people to get them to, to share these experiences and to create and provoke change and i think there's something so powerful in in that kind of storytelling activism that we can you know, again, it's not letting the right take hold of these narratives. It's not giving them permission to decide what an abortion is and what it means to to society. And and I think it's it was really inspiring to 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 see that campaign and to see the difference that it made. And it's also 
to talk about the terrible things, you know, to talk about that just last month on the 24th of May, a seventh woman died in Poland because she was denied reproductive health care since January 2021. And her name was Dorota and she was 33 years old and she was pregnant with her first child. Like, we have to talk about what it means when we don't have access to abortion and when we don't have access to our reproductive rights. It means women dying. And But we can also talk about the hope and the potential for change and tell the stories of victories won and tell the stories of, of fights that we have, you know, fought for liberation and fought for freedom. So I think there's, yeah, there's so much potential for storytelling, for creativity but and for telling the truth so that we we don't ever take what we have for granted and we don't we don't give up the fight for getting it to be better and to to win more rights and to reclaim the rights that have been lost and there i think we will have to leave it with the challenge for all of us to get stuck into that particular urgent fight edna shan thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you so much for having us that's all for this week's episode of the verso podcast we were joined by edna bonham and sean norris to talk about reproductive rights fascist myth making and what freedom of choice really means coming up soon we'll be talking about the future of care with helen hester and about cannibal capitalism with gargi bhattacharya and nancy fraser so tune in then You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.